Hello and welcome to ROI Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant and irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Christine Axon, professor of in the Department of History at Fordham University. We're going to be talking about History Happy Hour, Medieval Sleep and Dreams. Joining us for the second segment of the show are history buffs, Brett Menard and Ed Broders. So to begin with, welcome to the show, Christine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We are very excited. Uh, we call the first segment of our show Farouk Dinarin. And our goal is to give our listeners a little bit of background on today's subject. So can you start us off with some basic information about how people during the Middle Ages thought about sleep and dreams? Absolutely. So in terms of dreams, in the medieval world, they are prophetic. They are being uh, conduits for information from God, from saints, um, foretelling future events, perhaps. And we have a lot of examples in the Chronicles where great rulers have these really prophetic dreams, including Charlemagne, for example. With regards to sleep, they thought about it quite a bit differently than we did, than we do. Um, The main thing being that sleep for them is not necessarily one long stretch at night, as it should be for us. Um, They slept in in what's called biphasic or segmented sleep. Okay, so talk a little bit more about that, because we, in the modern world, tend to be fairly uh, uptight about our sleep. We worry about getting too much or too little, or we're not getting enough dream sleep, or we're not doing, you know, so we tend to be pretty nervous about it. Are folks in the Middle Ages not quite that that concerned about sleep patterns? Well, there's definitely less to distract medieval people from their sleep. I mean, if you're talking about the life of a laborer, they're working all day and then sleep comes naturally at night um, without the use of, you know, electric light, they're able to kind of be more in tune with the natural cycle that suits the circadian rhythm. So they'll get up when the sun comes up, they'll go to sleep when it goes down. This practice is pretty much universal before the industrial revolution, but in places that are, uh, unindustrialized today, people are still sleeping in this pattern. And we have references that go back to Homer in the Odyssey about first and second sleep. And according to um, one historian, in 54 different languages use the term first and second sleep. Okay. Um, So what do those terms mean then? So the first phase of this biphasic pattern is when the sun goes down until maybe about midnight or 1 a.m. And people would naturally wake up and actually perform certain tasks. So you might be praying. Um, the Christian liturgical hours have, uh, have the first sort of round of prayers around 2 or 3 a.m. You might do some simple chores that you can do in the dark or with low light, you know, uh, turning uh, flax into linen, etc., weaving, something like that. You might have a little... Uh, romantic dalliance. And if we look at the the crime uh, information from the Middle Ages, we know that people were also engaged in petty theft during this interphase um, between first and second sleep. And this would go maybe till four o'clock in the morning, and then people would revert back to sleep until sunrise and start the day over. Okay. That seems a little bit 
more like a, a modern sleep pattern, particularly for us older folks who seem to always have to get up at least a couple times during the night and go to the bathroom. <laughs> um, so, so that 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 at least rings rings true. What about dreams, though? How how does you know if you're interrupting sleep? How does that tend to affect? Uh, the way dream states work. Did most medieval folks, do we think, have active dream lives, or is it really rare and that's why it becomes prophetic? Well, I think they would certainly have very active uh, dreams because the REM cycle, I think, is just wrapping up after the end of the first phase of sleep. So you you are getting like the true deep sleep that provides dreams. Um, I think the prophetic element is because the medieval mind loves to kind of read and decode and kind of interpret symbols and images. And so a lot of our art from this period has like all kinds of different stuff that you can read on it. So when they, you know, to have a, an interesting or strange dream, you would want to be reading into that and to sort of pull it apart and pull out the information that you're being given. We have a couple of examples of the kinds of things that people thought uh, would happen based on certain dreams. We have this um, British manuscript that has preserved this book of dreaming. And so, for example, um, if you see guests arrive, you might expect to be captured. If you lose a tooth or two, your nearest friends will die. We have this whole, you know, string of interpretations of these common dreams. And we still, I think, associate some of these things today, right? If you dream about um, your tooth falling out, there's a death coming. I mean, I think we still still have that kind of paranoia. Sure. Um, I have about a minute left, so I'm going to ask what I hope okay. is a simple question. Um, in the modern world, very common types of dreams are dreams like falling. Um, my wife, uh, you know, being out of control, she would go to work uh, without her clothes on or whatever, <laughs> you know, those kinds of things. And, and you hear that over and over again. Do we have any sense that there are common medieval dream themes that, that show up? I would certainly think so. I mean, enough to the point where somebody recorded this book to help the general public, you know, understand their own thoughts at night. But in terms of the rulers, like, for example, I mentioned Charlemagne before, we get these dreams that, um, that foretell events in battle. For example, the same thing with Constantine, um, where they're being given a message. And as a sort of just and powerful ruler, it's their job to kind of parse their own dreams and, and maybe have somebody interpret it for them at the court and then act on it because their leadership depends on it. They're being given information. And so we see, you know, for example, certain battles are going to uh, fail or be successful if the king does X, Y, Z. Um, different signs from God coming through, maybe even the saints. Um, we have um, some images of Thomas Beckett, who is appearing to somebody to heal him in a dream. So these are the kind of general themes that we're seeing in medieval dreams. All right. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org.
Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Christine Axon, professor in the Department of History at Fordham University, and we're talking about History Happy Hour, Medieval Sleep and Dreams. Our history buffs for today show are Brett Menard and Ed Broders. Brett, as the medieval historian of the group, start us off. Gladly. So, Christine, I know that um, the Catholic Church has traditionally had mixed views on uh, on prophecy. So what was the, the church's official line on how one should go about interpreting dreams? That's an interesting question, Brett. Thanks. Um, I wouldn't say that they should be interpreted necessarily as strict prophecy, but as kind of a nudge, maybe. And it ha- it would really depend on how you're interpreting them. So if you are, you know, handing the, the dream off to an appropriate authority, somebody who's vested by the church, I would say that it would be fine um, to listen to how they're reading it. Um, I wouldn't necessarily, you know, trust just anybody, but in these cases of the rulers, we're really seeing, you know, the, the, this. Uh, proliferation of kind of like legend around these dreams because of course these are being recorded by chroniclers um, you know not the person who had the dream necessarily so you're saying that it's a bad idea for a medieval peasant side hustle to to go around and just start (laughs) offering to interpret (laughs) noble dreams (laughs) yeah I would say so (laughs) (laughs) okay Ed Christina, uh, my wife and I just watched a program on on, uh, on public TV uh, uh, about the Scottish witch trials of the 1500s, which predated the witch trials in Salem in this country by 100 years. And uh, one of the things that was deemed acceptable uh, as grounds for an accusation, if not conviction, of witchcraft was for a person, and typically this was a man, but for a person to say, I had a dream, and in my dream, this, usually a woman who is accused of witchcraft, this is what she did in my dreams. Um, Can you talk about that? I can try. Um, the, the, The period of sleep was considered to be very liminal, Right, you're kind of in this shut off animal mode, right? Your 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 reason shuts down, and this is why they um, found sleepwalking to be very interesting. And I have a couple funny examples of sleepwalking that has been recorded. But you're not responsible for what you're doing in sleep. But this is a vehicle, according to some of their ideas, for evil forces to kind of work their way in. And when we're looking at advice about sleeping, because you better believe we've got medieval manuals that, you know, try to write out all of the, the rules for how to sleep well, um, as they love to do for almost every topic. We get advice to sleep in certain directions, sleep on certain sides, facing certain things. Um, and all of this is to kind of combat the, let's see, the, um, the, the uh, how do I want to phrase this? To combat the kind of potential insanity that comes with sleep. So, you're trying to kind of 
do like a workaround. So while you're sleep, does this make sense? I don't, I can't even figure out how to say this, but essentially, essentially sleep is a kind of no man's land. And so it's a place where the supernatural can occur and you need to kind of sleep properly to avoid, you know, anything like possession or something like that. But again, this is not necessarily a widespread um, understanding. I would say that these are in periods that these, which trials are occurring in periods of great stress and, you know, persecutorial energy. So it, it's definitely changing over the course of the Middle Ages into the 15th century. Okay, Christine, that <clears throat> then sort of makes me think about, so who's who's involved in the process? Um, who's involved providing advice? Who's involved interpreting dreams? Um, and, you know, for monarchs, I particularly get the idea, but, but what if I'm a little bit further down the social scale? Um, is there, to, to go to Ed's point, is there a wise woman somewhere who's, who's providing interpretation to a commoner who has a recurring dream, for example? Because we haven't even talked about whether that's a, something that's been chronicled, the idea of you know the same dream over and over again. So mm-hmm. who's involved in, in sort of, I hate, it's the wrong word, but in the business of sort of managing or interpreting sleep and dreams? Well, I wouldn't think it would be so formal as, you know, you have to go to a specific person who's known for it. Of course, we have folk medicine coexisting alongside other forms of um, practicing medicine. And so there are people who are kind of treasure troves of folklore and knowledge that, you know, you can just have conversations about it. And so I'm, I'm sure what I don't, you know, I don't have any specific uh, evidence, but I'm sure with this kind of knowledge, it would be just like passing on medical knowledge from generation to generation. You have circles who kind of, you know, are, are familiar with these arts. And I'm sure that there were plenty of traditions that were just generally known, you know, like some of ours today um, are kind of universal. So, but, you know, I would say that it's probably just common knowledge and tradition that's dictating how to interpret them. Okay. Brett. So you talked about sleep being this sort of liminal fa- phase where you are potentially at risks. If I don't want bad things to happen to me in my sleep, what are some medieval precautions that I should take? Um, you would want to make sure that the moon's rays did not fall on your head. That's a piece of advice that we see in one of the, um, in one of the, uh, one of the, uh, what's that guidebook? Um, what's the word I'm looking for? The advice manuals. Um, and because of the kind of historical understanding of the humor system, which is these four different substances in the body that need to be kept in balance for one to be healthy, you would not want to sleep on your back because that would change the, the way that the, these substances are in your body. Um, and yeah, so basically just trying to, to sleep the good sleep. Um, and but this might be difficult because you would certainly be in bed with other people, right? Entire families shared beds, sometimes strangers, even at hostels. So, you know, you're probably not going to have this, you know, perfect, uh, quiet sleep anyway. But yeah, just trying to follow the way the body would like to keep its balance. Okay, Ed. Um, Christine, were there any situations in which um, someone went to more than one dream interpreter um, and got two different versions? 
Um, I don't have any idea about that. Sorry. Oh no, I just wondered how you would, how one would decide which one to believe. Um, Oh, I wouldn't think that people are like very formally going to 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 professional um, dream interpreters, right? Like, I think a lot of it is just kind of you know in the fabric of the society, and people would people would be familiar with interpretations. It's not like there's an oracle. And were, were men's interpretations deemed to be superior to women's, or was everybody on an equal footing? Um, I don't know either way, but I would guess yes, because it's the Middle Ages. Um, there, there is a gendered aspect to dreaming, um, and typically the, um, the women, women fictionalized dreams in literature sort of underlie this, this idea that women are deceptive. So when we have stories of women dreaming fictionalized dreams, that's the that's the main message. That's the takeaway. Okay. <clears throat> so I I know that you know very early Middle Ages we certainly have um, in uh, Irish literature, for example, um, we have dreams and and heroes then going off either good or bad. Sometimes the dreams are are good and sometimes they're false. Um, I'm I'm curious to do we have a you know you talked about Charlemagne and do we have a sort of a dream literature that develops over time over the Middle Ages of of uh, you know certain kinds of dreams or or certain situations tending to to lead to that. Well, we have dreams in literature which serve a you know a function in the plot line, right? We also have um, specifically saintly dreams, and these dreams um, are woven into the hagiographies or vitae, lo- the stories of the lives of saints, as indications that they are saintly and that they're being given messages from God. So, for example, we'll see, um, let me think, in the case of um, St. Ursula, who was martyred, uh, she has a, a dream that foretells her martyrdom. So we know that this is a common type of dream. We also have dreams that um, refer to the kind of persecutions that Christians are suffering in the early period. So in probably the third century, we have a woman who goes on to become a saint, and she she dreams about fighting animals in the gladiatorial ring as a kind of mark of her pending martyrdom. and then we have the general uh, text that I mentioned before, um, which is a book of dreams. And this was written in the late 13th century. We have a copy in the British Library that has just, you know, it's like a compendium of all the symbolism that you might encounter. Okay, Brett. So what is your favorite example of symbolism that shows up in this book is there some interpretation that's either really outlandish or and amusing or something where you're like darn i really want to have that dream because <laughs> i would love that to come true well my favorite one and i'm a bird lover so this is this is why um if you if you're sleeping and your dream is full of birds, you'll receive great rewards. So I just find that to be really charming. <laughs> um, if you dream that you're sick, it, it's an indication that you are blaming women for something. That's a slightly different angle. Um, 
And then I also like uh, that reading books or, or hearing books read out loud to you means hearing of good news. So that's another lovely one. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> Ed. Yeah. Um, if I uh, if I have the job of the uh, interpreter of dreams for a military high level military person, or even a ruler, uh, and the person comes to me, ask me to interpret a dream, uh, and I give an answer, and it turns out to be wrong, uh, am I protected by maybe that I've got a very high religious stature, or some kind of very highly regarded shaman what happens when i miss um i would just say that there is an error in the interpretation not that the dream was incorrect but again i don't think that we have necessarily people who are like full-time professional dream interpreters um i think by and large the idea would be that god would guide the interpreter to the proper interpretation so i did have some level of protection yeah, well, yeah, I mean, nobody's putting clerics to death, like, if a book can help it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Although you don't want to be often continuously wrong, you know, that... that right. <laughs> yeah, because now I'm, the, now I'm the tool of the devil. <laughs> right, right, yeah. That yep. leads you to a whole nother... Um, you mentioned earlier the idea of... Um, sleepwalking and and other things what happens in dreams you're you're kind of not responsible for can you give us a couple examples of that sort of thing and how that worked sure i've got just the thing um so because you're you're kind of going into autopilot right in your sleep and and your your dreams are going to be manifesting something from within you as well you um you become this like other creature. And it was really fascinating for medieval people who like to think about, you know, I'm talking about philosophers and, and theologians who, who like to think about how man is an animal and to what extent are we different than, you know, all the animals down the chain from us as stewards of the earth. So people wanted to observe people in the state of sleepwalking to learn about what, what's happening as they're kind of not transitioning over fully into sleep, right? You're kind of on that border. Um, <laughs> So uh, our Dominican friend, Albertus Magnus, tells us that he was shocked one time because a sleeping man asked and then answered his own questions. So, like, how is the brain still working? He loved that one. Um, we have a story of a doctor who fell four feet out a window. Um, and then my favorite one, absolutely by far, is from our chronicler, Froissart, um, who reported that he saw a man sleepwalking kill a bear in hand-to-hand combat <laughs> <laughs> that's a tough guy man <laughs> yeah i mean i don't even know what to do with that one but right. but ultimately the pope does the pope does say that you're not responsible um for for what you do during sleepwalking be- because you're not fully yourself so it's interesting that the pope is weighing in on this right um I have one last question here, uh, and uh, I'm, this is probably unfair because you know we're we're at the end instead of at the beginning, so maybe we'll carry it over into the podcast. But up to this point, we haven't talked about nightmares, and it sure feels to me like we should at some point. Um, so, how do medieval folks deal with the concept of nightmares and and uh, dreams that are really frightening? Hmm. Well, certainly you would have the sense of kind of being beset by evil, right, in the nightmare. Um, We know 
that if uh, a child wakes up with a nightmare, the, a little uh, guide actually tells, uh, a little, like, um, advice guide tells the parents that they should get up with the child and, like, you know, cradle the child back to sleep. So there is a sense of concern um, for the upsettingness of nightmares. I would say that the interpretation would be the same. Uh, you know, you would you would be looking for the same kinds of sets of symbols or activities or actions um, as in a good dream. So you would, you know, they, w- they would be characterized and coded in a certain way based on the society. And, you know, remember that medieval society is, like, profoundly diverse. You know, we're learning how much more diverse it, it was as we go on. Um, so there's going to certainly be, for example, religious um, elements that come in to change how how um, dreams are, are interpreted. So you might have a, a Jewish and a Christian dream that are similar but interpreted in different ways or vice versa. Um, maybe in the Mediterranean, you're going to have different sets of symbols than up in Scandinavia. So it's, it's still pretty uh, local in terms of trying to figure out exactly what a dream might mean. I mean, everyone's going to have their own kind of uh, set of, of coded symbols. All right. It is customary that we give our guests the last word on our show. So, Christine, why do you think knowing about medieval ideas about sleep and dreams is relevant in today's world? Well, I think there's the sense that the medieval world is very far away from ours, and that's just not true. I mean, when we can look at things that are kind of universal, like sleep and dreaming, we can feel close to the people of the past. So I think it's highly relevant to, to... not only understand them, but to interrogate our own assumptions about sleep and dreams. Okay, I'm going to ask the same thing of our panelists too, our history buffs. Um, what do you What do you think, Brett? Well, as someone who, especially during the pandemic when life was crazy, would would do you know biphasal sleep, especially when I was working on grad school stuff. You know you hit a wall, go to sleep, wake up in the middle of the night with inspiration, then pound out three pages of a paper <laughs> that's due uh, 12 hours later. Right. It's interesting to see you know, how people in the past dealt with that and if uh, it worked for them as well as it seemed to uh, work for me. Okay, good. Ed, what do you think? Um, I, th- I think there's some relevance um, just to the notion that that over time, that you know, we still dream. Some things haven't changed. We still dream. Uh, my wife has the occasional nightmare. I don't. Um, but I think it's important to just realize that there's certain things in the species that kind of come with the territory, and you know, some things aren't any different now than they were 2,000 years ago. Yeah. <clears throat> I agree with all of that. <laughs> when we come back, we'll wrap things up. So please stay tuned. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2.
This concludes our 498th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. My name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Christine Axon, professor in the Department of History at Fordham University. We've been talking about History Happy Hour, Medieval Sleep and Dreams. The history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We'd like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotza Pulinala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.